In the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, we are presented with God's wonderful plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save for himself a diverse family of saints who are being transformed by Jesus to live like Jesus. This is Galatians, God's very good idea, and we are Mercy Village Church, located in Barbersville, West Virginia, and you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. I want to start by saying something that may seem obvious. You will never not need the gospel. Amen. You will never not need the gospel. Now that's a clunky sentence, I guess, because it has a double negative in it. But it's a true sentence. Never in your life as a Christian will you come to a place where you are not in need of the gospel. The true gospel that saves you is the same gospel that keeps you. And it is the same gospel that leads you home. We're going to see that today in Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 14. And we're also going to see that the invitation of the gospel through Jesus is open to all kinds of people. We'll see both of those things play out today. Father, what we know not today, and for me that is much, please teach us. What we are not today, and for me that is much, please make us. And what we have not today, and for me that is much, please give us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. My kids have been exposed to the A-Team by my mom and dad. I don't know what station's running the reruns of the A-Team, but my parents are uh, exposing them to this. It's for good or bad, whatever, it is what it is. But if you remember in the A-Team, Mr. T, right? Now, if you don't know what the A-Team is, don't worry. You've probably seen Mr. T. He's the guy that says, I pity the fool. Anybody? All right. We got I see some, some responses that you recognize who that is. Well, the Apostle Paul is about to pull out his Mr. T impression. Or quite frankly, historically, maybe Mr. T pulled out his Apostle Paul impression because as he starts, he kicks off Galatians chapter 3. He says, Oh foolish Galatians. Harsh. He's ramping it up. His tone for the church at Galatia has been direct the whole time. He hasn't pulled any punches, but it's also been laced with tenderness and compassion, but now he risks offending them with this talk. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He says, not only are, is your mind twisted like in your own way, foolishness, but there's also a bewitching that has happened. This is a spiritual term. And if you're keeping track, the church at Galatia has, has begun to fade away from the true gospel. And this letter is to correct them and bring them back to the true gospel. And Paul has listed reason after reason why they've fallen away. He's blamed them, their own foolishness, their own lack of, of understanding and commitment. He's blamed who he refers to as the Judaizers, those who have come in with false teaching and tried to lead them astray from the true gospel, saying you can achieve salvation through works and you must be perfected through your works. He's called out um, the, them spiritually and intellectually. He also says now there's something spiritual at work. 
There's something unseen, right, in the spiritual realm, and we're not going to dig into all that today. We're not going to get sidetracked there, but know this. There is a battle that is unseen. There are forces of good and evil, and I have no clue, right? I could not write a book on any of that stuff. I won't even try to address it, except that I know that it is real, because the Bible says that it is. And so he's attributing this strain away in part to that as well. That is an additional reason. They have been bewitched. They have been led away. For we do not wrestle, Paul will say in one of his other letters, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And know this today, that one of the easiest lies to believe and one that the enemy will bring to you often is the lie that your old flesh so longs to hear. If you're a Christian today, who you were before you met Jesus is often referred to as the old flesh, the old man, the old woman in Scripture. And that old flesh inside of you longs to hear anything that will elevate self above your station. Make you feel like you're worth more to the equation than you should. Now, by the way, don't hear me belittling you because in Christ there is an inheritance. In Christ there is everlasting life and joy and satisfaction. In Christ there is deep meaning for life. But outside of Christ, that's the point. Outside of Christ, there is none of those things. And inside yourself, in particular, you will never find what you need to be truly satisfied. You will never find what you need to have true and lasting life, but yet we so deeply long to think that we have that inside of ourselves, that we can control situations, that we can make our way. But we'll easily believe that lie will be bewitched. But what Paul says is I portrayed to you photorealistically. Remember, uh, I think maybe it was like the, the Sega Dreamcast. Is that the, maybe those first, I remember when that came out, there was a football game on there. And for the very first time, you could like see breath coming out of players' mouths like in the introduction. I remember thinking, that looks real. And of course, it's gone even further since then. That's photorealism, right? Like video games at some point turned into these very realistic things. If you're into art, You've seen paintings, drawings that at first look like a photograph, but they're not. And this just draws you in. Paul says, I portrayed the gospel to you with photorealism. I showed you that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He even said, I'm the chief of those sinners. Jesus came into this world to save me, and he proclaimed to them, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our station apart from Christ, separated from him. But God, rich in love and mercy at the right time, sent forth Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, and then accused of something he had done, but right, claimed he was God, but he was God, so he was telling the truth, but twisted into a blasphemy charge, and accused of other things he had not done, he was taken and nailed to a cross, the perfect Son of God. And there, as the nails went into his hands and his feet, blood spilled out, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, washes away all of our sins. This is the gospel. 
And Paul says to them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You have to take ownership of where you're at apart from Jesus and capable of saving yourself. And you have to put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to be saved. And in Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith you can be saved. That is the gospel. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, in power, he was raised from the dead, and this Paul told the churches at Galatia with photorealism, they had seen a portrait of Christ crucified. And now he sees them fading away from it, and he lovingly calls them out, saying, You fools! But it's grounded in love. He wants to bring them back to believing the true gospel. And so he gives them some rhetorical questions, then he gives them a historical example, and he points these all to some theological implications, and it goes like this. First, the rhetorical questions. Verse 2, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he means when he says, did you receive the Spirit, he's talking about this very same moment, the moment that they were saved. When we are saved as Christians, the promise of the Bible and the example of the Bible, except for in the very earliest parts of Acts, right? In the very earliest parts of Acts, there's a delay until the Holy Spirit comes for the followers of Jesus. But from that point on, at the point that we are saved, we also receive the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is within us to lead us and guide us, to convict of sin, to lead us in godliness, and we receive Him at salvation. And He says, at that moment that you were saved, was that accomplished by the works of the law or by faith? He's already made the argument for it for the first two chapters that it was by faith, but He leaves the question hanging, rhetorical question number one. Question number two is in verse three. Are you so foolish, having began by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He moves from the doctrinal word justification to the doctrinal word sanctification. Justification in Appalachia, we call it getting saved. That's when you trust Jesus as your Savior, and in that moment you are made right before God. You are fully justified before Him. But then comes a lifetime of growing into Christ's likeness. And that is called sanctification. The work of God to make us more and more like Jesus. And he says, hey, when you were saved, if that was done, right, by faith, are you now thinking that you're going to play some role in your sanctification? That in your own power, you're going to be able to pull that off? through your own works and efforts and energies? Or will it be done through faith in the power of God? And he leaves that question to hang. Rhetorical question number three, verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now this may be missed on some of us, because say what you will, and a lot of us, you know, if you get on Facebook, you, you might see a lot of American Christians claiming to be persecuted. And I'm not saying persecution isn't coming, and I'm not saying that things aren't maybe rougher now on Christians than maybe they used to be, but, but we don't know persecution. Yeah. We just don't. There are Christians today who will be uh, 
going on year 10, year 12, year 15 in prison because they proclaimed the gospel. And in the churches of Galatia, there would be some there who at great cost had chosen to follow Jesus. It had cost them something to do it. Something severe. They had had to suffer because of it. And Paul says, you chose to, to put yourself under submission to this man named Jesus and that cost you something. But if you could have done it by yourself, right? If you could have justified yourself by yourself, and you could sanctify yourself by yourself, then you're wasting your time being persecuted for the name of Jesus because you don't even need him, right? Was it in vain that you suffered? Rhetorical question number three. Rhetorical question number four is final one. is found in verse five. He says, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing through faith? Now, we don't know what he means exactly by miracles here, except that they were things that only God can do. Were they physical miracles, like actual things outside of, you know, beyond science, beyond the natural world that God was doing in their midst? It's possible. Were they spiritual miracles? Most certainly it was that. It may have additionally been physical miracles. It certainly was spiritual miracles. Their lives were turned from darkness to light. Their hearts of stone were turned to hearts of flesh. There were miraculous things happening in their midst. Was the God who was doing these miracles doing them because of their works? Or was he doing them because of faith? Rhetorical question number four. And the big takeaway overarching all of this has two parts to it. One is that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of his children. He must be. From salvation all the way through sanctification, the miraculous things that happen in our lives, our ability to endure suffering, our ability to walk with Christ from salvation all the way to glory is done through the power of the Holy Spirit and more important to the point that he's making his work, the Holy Spirit's work, is not based on our work, but based on Jesus' work and our faith in Jesus' work. And so what he's done by tracing from salvation all the way through to the miraculous things that are happening in the lives of the churches at Galatia is he's saying you're going to always need the gospel. You're going to always need faith. The gospel that saved you will be the same gospel that keeps you and the same gospel that leads you home. You see, think of the gospel, right? And every illustration breaks down. So if you, you find some ways to like poke holes in this illustration, I have yet. It's not perfect. But imagine the gospel like an engine in a car. And imagine faith as the fuel. You've got to have those things to make it on your weekend trip. But while you go, you have your little app up there, your navigation app, and there's this little blue arrow or this little blue dot that moves along as you go, and it testifies to the fact that there's gas in the car and the engine is moving and you're on your way on your weekend trip. Works are that little blue dot, that little blue arrow. They testify to the reality of our faith, the reality of our movement in Christ's likeness. 
Now imagine you get to your weekend trip, you enjoy it so much, but now you're fixated on the little blue dot. And you think now, on the way home, that it's the little blue dot that's going to take you there. It's that little blue arrow that's going to take you there. And so you neglect to put gas in the tank, and you neglect to think about the engine. You ain't going anywhere. The little blue dot can't take you home. That little blue arrow can't take you home. Only faith in Jesus can get you home. This has massive implications, but before Paul gets there, he, he cites a historical example. He says, hey, Abraham, come testify to this with me. I, I want you to throw your uh, voice into this argument. And so in verse 6, he says this, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, next week, Paul, much to everyone's chagrin, including mine, because I have to prepare the sermon, is going to take a deep dive into that very thing. That from the Old Testament on, it's always been about faith. And he's going to use Abraham as an example. But I'm going to give you just a little preview. This is a little trailer for next week. I'm going to read you three verses. The first is in Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. This is when God's covenant is given to Abraham. And it says of Abraham, he believed and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Through faith in God's promises before Christ had ever come, Abraham was seen as righteous through faith. That's why Paul cites it in Romans as he's writing his letter to the church at Rome in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. When he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, if he'd have had the energy to make it happen, the effort to make it happen, he has something to boast about. But then he says, but not before God. Abraham can't boast before God. Verse 3, for what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so that's why Paul can say in verse 6, what we just read, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Next week's a lot more complex. Next week will be a deep dive, but here's the simple explanation of what Paul's getting. He's pointing back to Abraham and saying it's always been about faith. From before Jesus even died on the cross, it has been about faith and the promises to come. Now we look back in faith at the promises fulfilled. It's always been about faith. It's never been about the law. So with that, Paul turns to the theological implications. And these will be our applications today, too, as he closes out this portion of the letter. What are the implications? If, if it was faith that saved as far back as Abraham, and it's faith that saves us now, and it's faith that will lead us home, then, then what are the implications? I love the first one. first one's this. God's family will be diverse. He says it in verse 7 through 9. Know then that those of faith it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not those of Abraham's DNA, although some of them are the children of faith as well, but anyone who through faith believes in Jesus is counted as the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, as the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Abraham got a gospel sermon. 
When God said to him, and you shall all the nations be blessed, verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. And so the application for us is to invest ourselves in the supernatural community that is God's family. And I had this great quote I was going to read, and I walked off without the book this morning. Like a complete idiot, so I'm going to win it. We read this book called Community as a core team early in this year. And in that, one of the cases that is made is that one of the ways that the invisible God is made visible in this world is through the supernatural community of believers. You know, one of the things they cite in that is they say, look at the Jews and the Gentiles. The only thing they shared in common was a hatred for one another that was centuries old. Think of more modern day examples. Think of liberal Democrats and, and libertarian Republicans coming together in the same. That's a powder keg, right? That could go bad. You got your NASCAR fans and your intellectuals. You got your vaxxed and your unvaxxed, even, right? This is a new polar line withdrawal. Again, I'm not saying none of these things are important. But they fall subservient to the, to the gospel. Now we have Asians and Africans and Anglos and, and Jews and Latinos gathered together. We have people who set the thermostat at 68 degrees and people who set it at 72 degrees. This is a powder keg, right? We got people who cheer for WVU and people who cheer properly for Marshall University. In the same place. You have people who, who get food stamps and people who are trust fund. You got rich, poor, all that you can think of together. And you would think that this was a powder keg set to explode, but it isn't. Because of the one thing we have in common Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am foremost and chief and because of Jesus supernaturally people who have nothing else in common like Jews and Gentiles are brought together around the table and that's beautiful and the invisible God is seen as visible through that community. So invest yourself in the supernatural community of, of God's family. I'll never remember the instant family that we gained in Uganda. Just like that, we felt alone. And then all of a sudden, these Christians uh, of Ugandan heritage began to walk into our lives. And before we know it, nine weeks later, we're uh, headed back to see our boys for the first time actually in ten weeks. And yet we find ourselves Broken and sad because we're leaving behind people that we had just met nine weeks before. Pastor Vitos, the pastor at Sojourn, I'll never forget standing there in this church. People from South Sudan and Rwanda and Somalia and Kenya and Tanzania and the Democratic Republic of Congo and Europe and China and uh, the U.S. all gathered as one singing praises to Jesus. Oh man, it's beautiful. Supernatural community makes the invisible God visible. Another implication is that based on this reality that the gospel is the only source of life, faith in Jesus alone, to live by your own works is to be cursed. Verse 10, 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's Deuteronomy 27, 26. Verse 12 says, But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. You can choose to live by your own efforts, your own energies, your own works. You can base that is your standard for righteousness, but the end of that life will be that you'll be judged by the law. And none of us can live up to the law. And so those who live by the law will be cursed. But here's the encouraging part of that. Cease from striving. When I say cease from striving, I don't mean stop working or stop trying or stop walking, stop improving. I mean surrender control. Stop trying to change the outcomes of your life, in particular your eternal outcomes. You can't. Stop trying to weasel your way out from your guilt through self-medicated uh, or whatever ways you choose to try to get out from under your guilt, you'll never be able to do it on your own. Cease from striving. Cease from striving to control situations. Cease from striving to run your own life. And listen, if the past year has taught us anything, the past year and a half, is that even when things are absolutely out of control, we still can have this impression that we're in control. We still can try to control the outcomes. And God is calling to us and saying, you must cease from striving. The only thing that can cause us to cease from striving is to behold the photorealistic image of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead on our behalf. There and only there can we say, I will stop seeking to make my life count for something on my own. And I will put my faith and trust in Jesus. Stop striving, implication number two, start living, implication number three. Actively live by faith. You see, cease from striving doesn't mean cease from living. Live, work, do, live by faith, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Live. Do good works. Live by faith. And faith, true faith, is faith that downstream from that faith, good works flow. If there are not good works flowing downstream from your faith, hear me today, your faith may very well be in vain. If there is not evidence of Christ's likeness flowing downstream from your faith, then your faith today may be in vain. We must live out our faith. If your engine is Jesus and faith is your fuel, then you better believe that the blue dot's going to move somewhere. That the blue arrow on your app is going to move somewhere. Live. Live in obedience faith. Our living for Jesus, though, must be rooted in believing, so foster your faith. That's why prayer matters. Man, you, you want to have some faith, especially those of you that are like me, that your to-do list is so long and you just you wake up and you start and you keep going to the end and then you lay your head. Try stopping for 20 minutes to pray. That's faith. 
Some of y'all don't get that because you're like, chill, and that's cool, whatever. 20 minutes of prayer, I'll do that, it doesn't matter. But, but for some of us, to stop and pray for 20 minutes, can you imagine the amount of faith that that takes for some of us? Prayer is an act of faith. Submitting ourselves to the Word of God, reading it. The sacraments through faith received. The community of, of believers, all the disciplines. Foster your faith and let it saturate everything. That we will live out our faith in obedience and righteousness. We will live righteous lives by God's grace and faith. Final implication. God's diverse family can cease from striving and start living by faith because Jesus paid it all. Verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The doctrinal big words for this is penal substitutionary atonement. Penalty. Substitute. Purchased into God's name. That Jesus, God's son, guiltless, took the penalty for you and me on the cross in our place substitutionarily so that he might bring us to God. We could be reconciled to him. The Appalachian way to say it is sinners are winners or sinners can be winners because the winner died like a sinner. The winner, Jesus, died like a sinner so that you, the sinner, could be counted as a winner through faith in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the end here. The true gospel that saves us is the same gospel that keeps us. And the gospel that saves us and keeps us is the same gospel that will lead us home. So what are the personal implications? First one's this. Verse 13 and 14 together. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you're not a Christian today, trust Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. All the promises to Abraham can be yours today. All the promises to the children of God can be yours today through faith in Jesus. Trust him today. Child of God, might we remember that we were saved by the gospel and look back. Remember who you were before Christ so that you might live in humility and thankfulness instead of piousness and haughtiness and pride. Remember who you were before Jesus. It is the gospel that saved you. Live today by the power of the gospel. The gospel that saved you will be the gospel that keeps saving you. And the evidence of that will be a daily outflow of growing more and more like Jesus. Pursue Christ-likeness through faith. And don't stop. Keep pursuing it every single day. Jesus, make me like you. I believe in the power of the cross to transform my life completely. And so today I will walk in faith and obedience to the word of God.
live today by faith. And it's the gospel that will lead us home. Rest in that today. Especially if you find yourself in a place of suffering. If you find yourself in a cycle of, of, of failing to walk in obedience and you're wallowing in that or you're in the midst of grief, remember that it is the grace of God. It is the gospel realities that are yours, not just yesterday and today, but they are yours forever. And you can rest in them. Rest in the power of the gospel. So remember the power of the gospel that saved you in the past by faith. Work today in the power of the gospel by faith. And rest in the power of the gospel for the future by faith. If God has given you the gift of faith today, you can bank on this. He's going to give you everything else that he's promised. It will belong to the children of God. So when you fail, repent and rest in the forgiveness that is yours. And when you succeed, worship with thankfulness, because it's Jesus who pulled that off and made it possible. True gospel that saves you is the same gospel that keeps you, and it'll be the gospel that leads us home. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel, that it is transcendent of the timeline of our life with you, that it is what saves us and keeps us and takes us home, and so may we be an amphitheater full of people who through faith are surrendering our lives to you day after day after day and we will be marked by righteousness. But that, that will be achieved through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We're so thankful for Jesus today who takes our lives from what they used to be to what they are now with a promise of what they will be in the future. We may be complete idiots apart from you, but our future is incredibly bright because of you, and so we have reason to rejoice today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone, and we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.